everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion advised. I'm very excited to be joined for this very special episode by my friend, amazing historian Dan Jones, who's joining us via seamless internet technology from across the pond in England. Dan, thank you for joining me. It's absolutely my pleasure. We're like, we're so good at technology that this was set up just we did, it was the easiest thing. We knew how to do our headphones, our microphones. Both of us just nailed it immediately first try. I definitely had the microphone thing locked down. Did you? My, and contrary to what people are saying, my microphone was on the entire time. It was fully, fully turned on. That wasn't the mistake I was making. You were brought back on this podcast by popular demand. The the people demanded you, and so we had to bring you back. That's, you were the Charles II of podcast guests. Thank you very much. That's probably my favorite Charles of all the three. Yeah, of all the I three. Think so I, I, I think was so. I was asking you before we started how how is the new king over there? Well, I think that you guys are thinking about it a little bit more. Than we are. We we do. We had quite a lot of it last year, and and now we're just the coronation will be along in a few months' time, and I think we'll have another little go at it then. But by and large, no one's paying it that much attention. I think. I think of the two of us, I am the only one who read uh, Prince Harry's book. Is that true? That is true. Well, assuming you did read it, I did um, read it. I've no reason to doubt you, and it's the sort of thing you would do. I, yeah, I, I did that, like professionally, or, or were you well, actually curious? They sent me a copy, so this is full disclosure: is I got a copy for free. I don't know if I would okay. have like shelled out twenty twenty five dollars for it. And then I was just curious as a document. I was just mm-hmm. like, so what is this guy really saying? Did you find out by the end of the book? Yes, I think he's pissed <laughs> off, isn't he? He's really mad. And I think he had a very sad family life. I felt bad for him by the end of it. I was like, it must have been really lonely, your dad never hugging you. Like, that would have been awful. But I do kind of think he's mad about the wrong things a little bit. Like, he's holding these family grudges. And I feel sorry for him. But it also feels like, I don't know if he realizes it's not, that's not like the main problem with the monarchy. Yeah, it does seem to be quite... um... He does seem to have misconstrued and misconceived quite a lot of things that you would have thought, like, by the time you get to around the age of 40, he's a little bit yeah. younger than me, but I've, you know, by the age of 40-ish, you're supposed to have just started to work out certain things about your life situation. And he seems to have got some of them wrong, and the ones that he hasn't got wrong, he's reacted to in a really bad way. <laughs> it does seem as though he's the only one in this family who's gotten therapy. And so clearly a therapist is like, it would have been nice if your dad hugged you. And then he's like, yes. And then really decided to write a book about it. But was this a specialist therapist? Because I think it's like a certain, you need a special, like one that just does royals, really. Like, it's basically you. I could do it. You, I you, I... Seem, you seem like you should be the person that would do the therapy because you'd like probably think about this more than 
than a normal therapist. It's like true. It's a specific category of case. Do you know the most deranged thing that I've ever said out loud in my life? <laughs> <laughs> to my husband, I said I said the words, and I meant it is the, is the really messed up part. I said, if I had married into the royal family, I would have been able to, to hack it. Like, I would have been able to do it. I can follow rules really well. I would wear the oh. right nail polish colors. I wouldn't read the news. I would just, like, curtsy the right way. I would follow all the rules. But you've also done your research. Like, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. That you, I, I don't... I, don't I would have known what I was getting into. I think so. Do you, Would you wanted to do it? I mean, Absolutely. Like, your, your husband seems great, and, like, I'm not sure you and Harry would be a fit or whatever, but, yeah. like, would you, in, in the abstract, have wanted that job at any level? No. It's, to me, the, no. the job of being a, a royal, it seems like you are quietly uh, drinking all day with people I don't know if I would like. I'm not a big drinker. And also you have to go to a lot of like ceremonial hospital yeah. openings. It feels like you're going to like three graduation ceremonies a day and your kid is never graduating. Right. The job seems boring. I totally agree. And yet there is a small, like distinct subset category of people who, well, there's two, aren't there? There's, there's the people who are born into it and like totally deal with it. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. OK, I, this is like a. Like, I could have definitely been born into a much worse era in history or social position. I'm going to just accept that the cost of having all this great stuff is like a super boring job, even more boring than like being a square John in an office. Yeah. At yeah. least a square John in an office, you get to like go have your fun without people making fun of you. Well, yeah. So there, but there are a small number of royals who are like, yo, I, I, I'm going to take this. I'll take this deal. It's not yeah. a perfect deal, but I sense there are other worse deals that are possible. So that I can sort of, I can sort of get my head around. The ones that definitely are unusual are the sort of Kate Middleton type people who look at that and think it through. So they do the thing that you've done that possibly Megan didn't do and then go, oh, no, no, that is actually what I want. Yeah. Yeah. That's the weird thing. And then doesn't seem to have any regret or, or remorse. No. It, like was right. That was what you wanted. That She's very wanted. good at, at what she has to do, which is be conventionally uh, attractive and thin and wear clothing in public. Would you go to Mars if someone offered you a ticket? Absolutely not. Now? Well, want, I want somebody, and I don't care if it's Elon yeah. Musk, I just, I don't care who it is. I want a human being to go to Mars, but if you asked me, would I be that Yeah, human but would being, you do that? I would say no. I would say no. I would be like the 10,000th person to go to Mars. Uh, yeah, okay. After That's... they do it for a while. I wonder, is it the safety that you're worried about with Mars? Yeah, and it, it just seems, um, I don't know what I would be getting out of it. Yeah, the safety and uh, and for what reward. I'm not a rock scientist. I don't know if I would be the best person to put there. Could see you as a rock scientist, though. You've got science in your locker, haven't you? That's true. Could would you, you wouldn't go to Mars? Why wouldn't you go to Mars? The safety? Saw the, I saw the Martian with Matt Damon and the growing <laughs> potatoes looked tiresome to me. Yeah. That looked, it, it just, no. Just the, just the length of the journey. I You know, I, I'm a little... I don't think it would be for me the length of the journey. You know, Dan, but people, I think a lot of people would say that being a historian would be boring. You've had to spend a lot of time reading very old books. Thank you don't you. find you don't find that boring. <laughs> no, I don't actually. I quite like it. Yeah. But I don't know a lot of, hmm, are there a lot of people who looked at a historian when I think that's going to be boring? Because I think the case that we've been talking about is people who think something's going to be better than it is. I was pretty sure about what being a historian was going to be. You didn't think it was going to be like Indiana Jones? No, that's an archaeologist. 
Uh, but, but he's sort of in the same. It's the same academic. He's a professor. Oh, he's a he's a professor. See yeah. that, but that I wouldn't have done. I'm not a professor. Mm-hmm. I could never ever have been a professor, and that's actually important. So wh- when I graduated from my degree in 2002, I was going. Well, maybe he I went to Cambridge. Like a- he's not going to mention, but he went to Cambridge. Uh, you know, I don't. I like other people to bring it up for me, and it's the real one as well, not the like, poxy one in Massachusetts. When I graduated, and I was thinking, oh, shall I do like loads of more degrees and stay at Cambridge? Sort of. Everyone that had taught me and knew me was like, I don't think you're like that. I don't think you're like any aspect of that whatsoever. And so the the life that I've chosen is distinctly not that of uh, an institutionalized professor. It's the life where I just sort of do my own thing and read what I want to read and write what I want to write and sit in my little office in my pajamas, which I'm doing now. This is an audio medium, but I do want people listening to this to know that Dan is in a a very nice set of pajamas, a it's full pajamas. a full set of pajamas. Like he's in like Notting Hill or something. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen anyone in like a full set of pajamas, and it's not that late that we're recording. But he got ready for bed. Yeah, but I knew that after we finished, it would be about my bedtime, and then I just thought I'd just be ready. I could just dive straight into bed, and just worm my way, and like have a little, you know, sleep. Well, if we're talking about diving straight in, you're here because you have a novel that's coming out in the United States. In paperback? Is it coming out in paperback or hard hardback over here? Hardcover. They've got so much. Hardcover, of course. Hardcover. Yeah. It's the real deal. Yours? I think hard, you've got one hard, as well, haven't you? Hardcover. Yeah. Hardcover. Yeah. Hardcover. Uh, hardcover people. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. That's us. Oh, my gosh. And he's drinking wine. He just pulled. A goblet of wine out from behind the behind the camera. It is almost it is it's quite a large wine glass, but with not much wine in it. So yeah, it does have a sort of goblet vibe to it. It's Monday night. I would not drink heavily on a Monday night. Of course. Well, we are here to talk, of course, about his wonderful novel, Essex Dogs, which I had the privilege of reading. It's just a it's a wonderful novel. If you like this podcast because you like interesting stories from history, well told. Obviously, Essex Dogs is a fictionalization, but it is based on a very true story. And that's what I would like to talk to you about. Oh, that would be fun. Let's do it. So tell me the story. And my Achilles heel is French pronunciation because my Eastern European tongue doesn't curl the right way. But the say the name of the campaign to save me from myself here. So Essex Dogs is set in the Cressy campaign. Oh, Cressy. That's that, I could have done that. You can say Cressy. Yeah. There's a little. There's an uh, accent, accent that threw me off, made me so nervous. Cressy, Cressy, but but mm. Cressy's fine. Um, so that's one of the first major campaigns of the Hundred Years' War, which took place in the summer of the year 1346, which is right at the start of the Hundred Years' War. If we date Hundred Years' War from 1337 through 1453, we're loaded at the beginning with Edward III's reign. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt before before we dive in for people who are just listening and and have heard probably the term Hundred Years War but don't know exactly what it is. Can you set up a bit about what this conflict was and why they were fighting it for so long? Yeah, absolutely. And at its very very core, the Hundred Years War is a dispute in the late Middle Ages in the 14th and early 15th century between the two royal rival houses of. The kingdoms of England on the one hand and France on the other. And at the very core of the dispute is who should be the king of France. Starts with Edward III, who claims that he should be the rightful king of France because he has a claim through his mother and his cousin, Philippe of Valois, who is the king of France, Philip VI, 
Um, at the outset of the Hundred Years' War, says, well, I beg to differ. I am actually the King of France, and I have a claim to my father, and I was... My father, the King of France. Well, his father wasn't the King of France, but, oh. so there's, uh, but he's, he's got, I think, inarguably a better claim than Edward. Um, however, there are other reasons for them disputing who's going to be the King of France rather than they both want to be the King of France. One of them is that you have an anomalous, sort of weird position by the time you get to the 14th century, which is goes all the way back to the Norman Conquest of 1066, whereby kings of England have lands in France, and sometimes that's Normandy, and at its greatest extent under Henry II, uh, it's Normandy, Aquitaine, Anjou, Maine, Brittany, Touraine, like this this huge swathe, almost a third of the land, current territorial landmass of France is at some point held by English kings, technically as nobles of France. And that's a weird situation, and it changes and evolves throughout the Plantagenet years. But by the time you get to Edward III, they still have a small amount of land in Gascony, and the French kings aren't very happy about that because it's irritating to have a, another king as one of your lords. Vassals. So, vassals, yeah. So, so part of the reason for, for this dispute over the, the crown of France is a kind of nuclear escalation of this argument. Edward III sees that one of the best ways to counter Philippe's claim to kick him out of Gascony is to say, you can't kick me out of Gascony because actually I'm the king of France. And you know what? Let's have a really long war about whether or not this is the case. And it goes, oh, it gets generated 100 years is, is underplaying it. It's, it goes on for 140 Six? No, it's not quite. One hundred and sixteen, one hundred and seventeen years. Something. One. So. One of my favorite tidbits, uh, I think, from one of your books, the book on the the War of the Roses, is when fast forwarding, obviously, you know, a hundred years from this event. When I hope I'm doing this right because it is from your book, Henry the Sixth is trying to establish his claim in France, and they're distributing propaganda posters trying to trace his lineage back to Saint Louis to be like, no, no, he's he's right. Look at the poster that we made. Yeah. They get right into it, and it opens up this enormous can of worms, which which you then start to see in the domestic politics of England and France as well, of people saying, "Oh no, wait, I should be the king because X, Y, or Z." I mean, that's that's what underpins the Wars of the Roses in England, the 15th century York Lancaster quote unquote uh, conflict for the crown is really some of the principles established in the Hundred Years' War, which are like, "I've got a better claim to the crown than you, and I'm going to fight you with my now enormous armies and improving siege weaponry and so on and so forth. Anyway, so back to the Hundred Years' War, as well as a dynastic dispute for the, or quote-unquote dynastic dispute for the crown of France, it starts to draw in more and more and more combatants around Europe. So you have the Scots fighting the English. You have Castile drawn into this. Eventually you have sort of kingdoms of Portugal drawn into it. You have Flanders as an enormously important sort of theatre of hot and cold war. You have the sort of German states in the Cressy campaign. You have uh, the Battle of Cressy, as we hopefully get to, you have five different kings on the battle. So this this apparent sort of uh, neighbourly dispute between England and France, in fact, spills out into basically the whole of Western Europe, fighting each other in various combinations for generations. So now explain what the Cressy campaign is. We have King Edward III in England trying to retain his claim in France. And what happens? So... At this point, which is 3046, the war is young. War is less than nine, less than 10 years old. And there have been already different spheres of operation opened up. There's fighting going on down in Gascony. There's been a great sea battle at Schloes, which is sort of a modern Netherlands. 
But this is the first big invasion by one side of the other. So in July 1346, Edward III lands approximately 15,000 troops on one of the Normandy beaches. And when I say Normandy beaches, you probably think D-Day, 1944, World War II, and you're right to, because it is a beach on the Cotentin Peninsula of Normandy, slightly up from what in the Second World War was called Utah Beach, at a place called St. Valauque, where Edwards put 15,000 men onto a beach. And um, you can sort of imagine this as a medieval saving private Ryan. In fact, the, uh, the idea of a medieval saving private Ryan, you know, medieval D-Day, was the first picture I had in my head that sparks what became the novel of Essex Dogs because I felt like I'd never seen a kind of Band of Brothers, Saving Private Ryan, American hard-boiled version of a medieval amphibious invasion. But that's how the Cressy campaign starts. Edward III says, you know what, I'm off to France and I'm going to, well, is he actually going to try and take Philippe's throne in Paris? Possibly. He's certainly going to cause as much trouble for Philippe VI of France as possible in northern France in order to discomfort him so much that possibly his nobles will rebel against him and his people will start to abandon their, their fealty to him. So that's what Edward, Edward sets about doing. 12th of July, 1346, he lands this huge army. Probably over the course of the next few days, they, they decamp onto the beach. They are opposed by local militias, but the local militias who are opposing them soon see that this is an enormous, enormous army. I mean, a gigantic invasion army. This is the biggest army that has ever been taken from England to France. And they're going to do some some serious damage. So they so the the small militia who were on the coast, because Edward had kept his invasion plans or the location of his invasion at least secret. Spies had been in London for months and months. They knew an invasion was coming, but they had no idea where. The parallels with D-Day in 1944 are, are striking. Um, there's, there's not much opposition. They start falling back. And so Edward really has then the run of the Cotentin Peninsula, this bit of Normandy that sticks out, sort of going up to Cherbourg. So between Normandy and like Calais... So it's hard without drawing you a map, but there's a sort of pointy bit that's not Brittany of France. Mm, okay. That's the bit of Normandy we're talking about. So they and they come in right at the tip of it. And the French strategy for the first couple of weeks is essentially a Fabian one, is to fall back, try and delay the English advances as much as possible by breaking bridges, by burning things, by but not by engaging. And so the English do what will become a standard tactic of the Hundred Years' War, and they, they sort of launch it in earnest in 1346, and it's called the Chevauchet. So they set their army out, essentially into the field to just burn and plunder and cause as much terror and mayhem as possible. It's to carve a path through the landscape, a path of terror. Now, I wrote Essex Dogs... When did I finish writing it? I finished writing it through March 2021, so shortly before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But if you can cast your mind back to Russian tactics at the beginning of the war in Ukraine, which was to burn and plunder and rape and kill and cause as much mayhem and terror as possible, that's borrowed directly from a long military playbook. Edward III did not invent the Chevauchet. The Mongols had done it before. I'm sure, you know, in the Bronze Age it has happened. You know, we can go back probably as far as human history and mounted warriors anyway go to, to see examples of similar tactics in warfare. Sure. But this is like Edward really mastered, the English master the Chevauchet in war. And they, so the first sort of, or probably half of the Gressy campaign is effectively one big long just campaign of absolute terror as the English push through the Norman countryside, through the sort of bocage and all the stuff. You, again, if you know your, your 
uh, Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers, you know, these, these little lanes and the hedgerows. English just burn a sway through it, heading for the major towns of Normandy, um, which will lead them to the same valley, and then they can go upriver towards Paris. And so in your fictional version, we're joined mm. by 10 men. In Essex Dog, the story is 10 men who are sort of more loyal to each other than any crown. Right. So this story of the Crissy campaign has been told in history and in fiction many times. But it struck me when I was thinking about it, or, or thinking more generally about the realities of warfare in this period, which is something I've written a, a reasonable amount about in my history books, struck me that we very seldom see medieval warfare through the eyes of what in a World War II film you'd call the ordinary grunts, right? Mm. Just the rank and file. The Crissy campaign is really famous in medieval history for things that aristocrats and nobles do. There's, there are lots of little famous sort of vignettes and set pieces. When Edward III lands on the, on the beach of St. Valouge, for example, he, he trips over in the surf, bangs his nose into the sand and gets a nosebleed, and he has the, the quick wit to say, ah, this just shows the land wants me, because everyone's worried this might be an omen. <laughs> when we get to later in the campaign at the Battle of Crissy, the Black Prince supposedly performs great heroics. He's in danger. His father refuses to come to his aid, so the story goes. He says, let him win his spurs. And this is, you know, at 16 years old, this is the Black Prince kind of magnificent emergence as a chivalric warrior. Anyway, Chrissy throws up lots of these vignettes through the, the writings of chroniclers like Jean Froissart and various others of that type. But we don't often hear anything at all in this campaign about what it was like for ordinary people. Now, if we consider that in a medieval army of about 15,000, somewhere between 10 and 20% would be what we'd call nobles and knights. That still, that leaves the vast majority of the army as not nobles and knights. And what I wanted to do was somehow or other capture the experience of one small group of warriors on this campaign who were all ordinary people. And so I created this little platoon, really, called the Essex Dogs, who are quite typical of what we know of the, the rank and file of medieval armies in this period, in that they're not professional soldiers because there are no professional armies in this point. They are sort of just, you call them mercen mercenary, freebooters, chancers, you know, in, in wartime they will seek out military contracts and go fight for whoever's paying. And in peacetime they'll use exactly the same skills for whatever jobs require them, and that tends to be sort of thieving, piracy. If you need someone beating up, who do you call? You know, they're dead. So they're a group of violent, or of men for whom violence is their profession, but not all of them are violent men. And so within this group, you have some people who are unthinkingly committed to the, uh, the profession of fighting and mm. causing mayhem. And there are some who are new to it and don't really know what they've gotten themselves into. And there are some most or best epitomized by their leader, Loveday, who was into it, but is starting to have second thoughts. And so you, what we see unfold across their adventures within the Crazy campaign is the dissolving of the bond between that group Hume. as they all ostensibly try and keep the group together. You know, they, they're committed. They're all verbally and, and in some sense mentally committed to, to one another to keeping this, this band together. But actually, it's it's all going to shit. It's like the end of the Beatles, you know. <laughs> Everyone wants this thing to continue, but it's it's you know, it has to it has to finish. Although by the end of Cressy and the the siege of Calais, it's a 
victory for the English, isn't it, at this point? That's the thing about the Crazy Campaign. You have this chevauchee, you have several big sort of dramatic scenes in Norman towns at uh, Saint-Lô, Caen, Rouen. You have dramatic crossings of two rivers, the River Seine, and then north of that, the River Somme. And then you have this enormous battle at Crecy at the end of August 1346, which is a seemingly miraculous victory for the English. Subsequent to that, they go off to Calais and besiege Calais. That's the topic of the book I'm writing at the moment, which is a sequel to Episodes called Wolves of Winter. Sorry to, to spoil the ending. Wikipedia would do the job just as well. Um, so, uh, of spoiling, I mean, not of, not of writing a novel. Uh, no, but AI might be might be close uh, behind. Yeah, G- yeah. I think GPT four might have me. Yeah, I like to say five, but it's actually four that's going to catch me. I think. So yeah, and then well, then you have the siege of Calais, which follows, which is a very different kettle of fish. If the the Crescent campaign lasts roughly seven weeks, uh, the Calais campaign is an eleven month siege, which ends with them starving the people out of Calais. But yeah, the the end product of the of the Crest campaign, is they, they take Calais, and that's in English hands until Mary Tudor's right in 1558. It is wild to consider uh, starving a city out as a victory. Yeah, but uh, that, that's that's the tactic in medieval siegecraft by and large, is hang around until someone gets bored and gives up, or gets hungry and gives up. Um, and the victory is that Calais falls into English hands. And this is not just, well, hey, we took a city, in military terms. There's an enormous economic component to this warfare. Now, in Essex Dogs, when I try and show really, really up with a camera locked to this very small group of men is what does the war look like from this, in this claustrophobic environment of a single military platoon? What I'm trying to do with the Siege of Calais in Wolves of Winter is to show actually what are the other interests in this war because we've all heard the cliche talking about British and American an allied activity in the Middle East over the course of our lifetimes. Oh, it's all about the oil. It's just all about money. Well, that's that's kind of tr- people say that because it's there's a lot big part of that that's true. It's also true in the Middle Ages that it's it's about the economy, <laughs> and Calais is an enormously important strategic town halfway between. It's sort of it's between France and Flanders. It controls a very narrow, the narrowest bit of the English Channel. It's in easy reach of the most economically prosperous port towns in southern England, known as the Sink Ports. It's a, been a haven for pirates for years and years and years who can prey on passing shipping. It's both a menace and an incredibly, it, it'll be a, a bridgehead for any further English military operation. But fundamentally, once the Siege of Cal- once Calais falls in 1347, Edward III clears out everyone who lives in Calais, invites in the richest merchants from England to take over this town and yeah. run it as an economic entrepot on the, on the continent. Again, not new thinking. This was exactly what had happened in the Holy Land during the Crusades. The same thing had happened. The Crusades, yes, they had a big religious purpose to go to Jerusalem, but then there were the, the thing that kept everyone interested was the economic viability of the port town. Well, this is sort of the same in the Hundred Years' War. It's, there's a massive financial imperative to doing this. And the only reason that these wars are possible is because people are prepared to lend Edward III astonishing amounts of money. Astonishing amounts of money. He bankrupts banks. He bankrupts the Vardy Bank. He almost bankrupts the Frescobaldi. He He's running up these gigantic debts to syndicates of merchants from the richest towns in England to continue paying for this war. 
And they're all very happy to continue financing the war because war is fantastic for business. The more money they lend him, he mortgages, uh, effectively creates a mortgage to pay for these wars. He says, give me the money now and you can take over um, to the tax revenues of all these different rich ports around England. So the Hull merchants take over the ports of Hull, the Yarmouth merchants take over the tax of the ports of Yarmouth, the London merchants in London, and so mm. on, Dover and so on. So once you really start getting under the skin of this war, which looks like, if you read Froissart, knights and nobles doing heroic deeds, that's just all like, that's the, that's the icing. This is really just about merchants and pirates struggling for financial dominance and poor grunts dying because of it. If we're talking, you know, chivalric deeds, I feel like the the legend of Edward the Black Prince, who is the the mm. son of King Edward III, obviously Edward dies and never takes the throne, which, you know, leads to challenges in the War of the Roses. But he's, in my understanding, in British culture, very much seen as a gallant hero. How did you portray him in, in your book? Well, she asked in a non-leading question. Oh, how nice of you to ask. Yeah, Edward, Edward the Black Prince, eldest son of Edward III, does have this this grand reputation as the sort of paragon of of chivalry. It's it's him, it's Henry V after him, and it's Richard the Lionheart before him. And I don't think you would have wanted to run into any of those three. Uh, actually, I, I was going to say in a dark alley, but anywhere ever. Well, I would. I'm I'm very charming and a lady. They would be very nice to me. No, they wouldn't. That's, that's the horrible thing. They, they really, <laughs> absolutely, massively wouldn't. None of those three men would be nice to you at all. They'd be ghastly to you. Uh, and they'd be ghastly to me as well, because I'd be a sort of Welsh peasant person. So, um, but Edward the Black Prince, he has this great reputation. I think he's, it's, it's great that he never became king because that reputation would have evaporated. He was by no means as subtle as his father, he was, in later life, an extraordinarily effective warlord, so a medieval military tactician, if not a strategist. Uh, he was a brutal, absolutely, like Henry V, absolutely brutal in an age which demanded that, by and large, of its military leaders. In the Cressy campaign, he's often romanticised as having been this kind of 16-year-old, his first time on campaign, and so the story goes, based on very, very thin evidence, he acquits himself Im immensely well. Well, what do we mean he acquits himself well? He sort of doesn't really do anything for the whole of the campaign because he's been babysat by the Marshal of the Army, uh, Thomas Beecham, Earl of Warwick, and the Constable of the Army, William de Boone, Earl of Northampton. When he does sort of have an opportunity to do anything, the first thing he does of real note during the campaign is sack a monastery. Then he allows, then a bit later, once his father has issued instructions, they're on the run from Philip's army at this point, between the Seine and the Somme. On no account are we stopping to sack monasteries. He lets his men sack another monastery for which 20 of his men are hanged summarily by his father. And then when we get to the Battle of Cressy, well, Edward the Black Prince comports himself in quite a strange way. He's placed, he's sort of front and centre of the action but he doesn't really obey orders or seem to understand the tactics of the battle very well. And he allows himself to be pulled out of the English lines and effectively captured. And his standard falls. And this is a big disaster in the, in the heat of the battle for the English. Now, the legend goes that he had been seen surrounded 
and his father was who was commanding the battle from the rear uh, up on a windmill so he could see across the whole battlefield his father was informed that he was in trouble and said oh you know let it let him win his spurs and prove himself a man but none of that in point of historical fact and there's been some amazing research on crecy historical research on crecy recently by michael livingston which has revised the location of the battlefield and, and everything basically that happened on the battlefield says that it, that's really not what happened at all he was captured and he was enormously lucky to be rescued. <laughs> um, and his father was extremely annoyed with him after the battle. Anyway, so my knowing all this, as I'm trying to write the Black Prince into the story of Essex Dogs, I also asked myself, well, firstly, you say, well, people can change throughout their career. And I, I, but I asked myself, what would a 16-year-old placed in charge of an army when his dad's also the king actually be like? And my answer was not a well there's a degree of petulance which to go back to the beginning of our conversation uh, one does see sometimes in princes of the royal blood <laughs> there's an enormous no comment of, yeah thank you enormous amount of arrogance uh there's a total irresponsibility and since i was trying to write a a fun novel and there's almost nothing that's known in reality about the black prince's character from this time i it's not written afterwards but by people seeking to lionize him I thought, well, let's make him a drunk. Let's make him a sort of vicious little swine. But also a guy who is beat, and here's Harry again, has had to deal with the fact of a father as a king. His, yeah. own, his father has been king since he was 15. His father has not been to all his school plays, let's say. Uh, he's, uh, <laughs> he's a horrible little shit because he's lonely. But that doesn't excuse his atrocious behaviour throughout Essex Dogs. And that we have a mirror character among the Essex Dogs who's called Romford, who's also 16, but who's a sort of street kid from London who's been found his way into this group of the Essex Dogs at the last minute, literally as they're getting on the boat to leave France. He's trying to run away from England and succeeds. He and the prince cross paths with, for Romford, emotionally disastrous consequences. And for the prince, absolutely no consequences whatsoever. He learns nothing. He sees nothing. He's he's completely untouched by the the gentle suffering of his his little acolyte. And so there's a kind of it's not quite a romance between them at all, but there is a collision of these two sixteen year olds in war that I found quite interesting to write. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash noble. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
We all carry around different stressors, big and small, and when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. I mean, sometimes I don't even realize what I'm stressed out about until I'm like snapping at my friends and loved ones. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if that's something that you're interested in starting and exploring yourself, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, and it's flexible, totally suited to your schedule. All you do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if it's not a good fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com noble today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash noble. I was going to to ask, I don't want to do another too much of a leading question, but there is a little uh, interesting thing you play with around sexuality. And can you talk a little bit about the fluidity maybe of sexuality in the 1300s that maybe modern audiences don't understand necessarily or want to think about? Yeah, there's look, there's quite a lot of, of really respectable authors. And I, I, I can't possibly include myself in that bracket. But, you know, there's, there's, there's proper writers writing about the Middle Ages at the moment. The temptation, of course, for modern novelists approaching the Middle Ages is to just dump 21st century priorities onto this canvas. Because it's like, it's a cool mashup, I, and I get it. It's, hey, nonny, no, but guess what? We're all sort of gender fluid, or whatever it might be. Some of these novels are great in their way. But I found it like not that satisfying uh, a thing for me to do to go to go and do that. And what I tried to draw out in Essex Dogs, particularly in this story I've alluded to between Romford and the Black Prince, is something about what sexuality was like in the Middle Ages, which is is not so categorised, let's say, as it is now. Yeah, we have in the twenty first century a weirdly nineteenth century pseudo scientifical scientific sort of approach that we've we've put into gender and sexuality. That were we to see it in terms of ethnicity and um and like shapes of heads and shit, you go, oh my god, that's the wackiest end of the wackiest wackiest end of nineteenth century pseudoscience. But we've we've sort of got a version of that around sexual. In the Middle Ages, you don't have any of that. You've got lots of really wacky, weird nonsense science. But it doesn't seem to have been applied to categorizing sexuality. So the love between men, which we would probably categorize as homosexual, isn't really thought of in that way as the Middle Ages. There are distinct categories of sexual in uh, misconduct. Well, there's really just one, which is buggery. As sodomy. Like anything that, as we would say. Sodomy, buggery, yeah. sodomy. Yeah. There's that, and then there's everything else. Or rather, there's there's what's legit in under church law in terms of sexual conduct, which is very strictly by this stage uh, defined as sex between one man and one woman for the purposes of procreation. And then there's everything else, which is pretty much, you know, which could be gathered. Now, that's a, a very strict church definition, and it's not very well policed, and I don't think it's very well observed or obeyed. In fact, it's definitely not very well observed or obeyed by ordinary people. But uh, as regards, you know, the sort of versions of same-sex attraction, which in, in the 21st century, we would be extremely keen to categorize and delineate and make sort of names for, 
and acronyms and hashtags and stuff like that's that's us they just don't do that i'm not like passing judgment really i'm just saying that's not how it works in the middle ages when you try and make the middle ages do that it doesn't ring very true so what i try to do in essence dogs is just play with this idea that there is an attraction certainly from romford's side yes that came across to me as a reader yeah older men are attracted to romford romford doesn't really know what he's about because he's just like a, a fiend and a drifter. Uh, he quite likes the prince, but he doesn't, he doesn't sort of torture himself by asking what that makes him. He just has this kind of attraction towards the prince, which is in, in some sense sexual, but is also in that sexual attraction is indistinguishable from a role that Romford is given as a squire, as a sort of social inferior to the prince. So he's sort of... He, he looks at him with this kind of daunted admiration, which spills over into sexual attraction. But that's so much of that is part of his feel like the, the the social difference between them. And you can't unpick in the Middle Ages the, the difference really, between social longing and sexual longing. They're bound up in the same thing. And so the love story such as it is between them is quite subtle, I think. It's certainly in its resolution. Yeah. Yeah, and doesn't push it into the psychological component of romance that we are familiar with. And that that really is something I've tried to do throughout Essex Dogs is is show you the Middle Ages with as little 21st century psychological intrusion as is possible without making it just totally confusing and weird. So they do, in order to make it comprehensible, they speak in a, a sort of form of modern idiom, but they don't do things... Even the sympathetic characters don't aren't really sympathetic in ways that are we would we find sympathetic in a novel set in contemporary time. I find that challenge so relatable. I wrote a book and another book coming out in February that takes place in the early 1800s, and I tried to keep everything as palatable for a modern audience as I could while still maintaining the feel of you know the Regency period, pre-Regency period in this sense, but. My copy editor and I went back and forth a lot because I wanted to have characters say, okay. And she was like, you can't. And I was like, I know it's not historically accurate, but to me it conveys sort of a youthfulness and a teenage, you know, conversationality that a, a younger character would do that I kept them. So it's like even the mistakes that I, mistakes I put in air quotes I made, I think I, I tried to make as deliberate choices for the text. As you know, I absolutely loved anatomy. Thank you very much. I cannot wait to read Immortality. And I, I, I think you're brilliant, and I just I read that that first book. He was in like one. I didn't. Was I didn't put him up to this. No, no, no. You absolutely didn't. You absolutely didn't. In fact, I barely knew when I bought it, and I read it in one go, and I was transfixed by it. I remember as I was reading, I was uh, sending a message saying, "This is just such like I was transported to that to Edinburgh at that time," and I thought that you just handled all of the stuff that I'd been sort of agonized. I was agonizing over as I was writing Essex Dogs at the time. I was reading that. Like it just felt, I'm, I'm sure effortless is not the right word because, you know. No, I I agonised over those things too. You have to make those the sort of choices. But uh, when the result that you you end up with feels, just you you know, once the reader falls under your spell, in anatomy, you know, they're just there, they're in that world, and it just everything feels right. And I think you've got to you've got to earn that. And Dana, I think, you know, as you know, I thought you you earned it magnificently in that book. But I think any writer has to, you have to earn the right to do things that aren't period accurate within a period book. And that means getting an awful lot of stuff 
right or close to right, so that you then you you then say, okay, well, you earn the reader's trust, and they're going to go with you even when it it is clear that you're doing things that are not possible in that period. So in Essence Dogs, you know, you've said you have people saying, okay, I I really struggled with. I'm writing a book about men in the, the an army. How am I going to have them speak to one another because they've got to be somewhat profane? Yeah. But the profanity of the Middle Ages uh, is blasphemy, fun- fundamentally. Our profanity is scatology and and it's and it's sexual. That's how we swear. But it, so I had a lot of trouble about: Am I going to use the F word in this? And I, it, it, eventually, yeah, I use it fairly liberally to punctuate military speech to, to because you have to translate dialogue. From it, it communicates it to a modern audience what you need to convey. It's part of the the Tiffany problem, right? The Tiffany problem. Yeah, it's a so it's that's just sort of the the colloquial name for it. The fact that like if someone hears the name Tiffany, they they're like, oh, nineteen eighties, let's go to the mall. But Tiffany is a name that existed in the middle ages and the high, you know, and for, for years and hundreds of years. But if you wrote a historical fiction book and made your main character named Tiffany, it would seem wrong, even if it's right. And so the Tiffany problem is a, is a colloquial version that someone told to me when I was writing anatomy, where sometimes you have to make things a little wrong. So they feel right to modern readers. Do you know what I love that I've never heard it described as the Tiffany problem yeah. uh, before? But it's that's that says it, that says everything. I always think it's like castles. You know, I I, I like a good castle as much as the next. Famously, probably more. Watch watch uh, Dan Jones <laughs> walk through castles on Netflix. Please, please squander your life in this pursuit. But they're the wrong cut. Co- you know, you see them now. They're so bland. All medieval churches. They're just devoid. Almost they're usually devoid of wall paintings and color and no whitewash. If I went down to Windsor Castle which is about five miles down the road from my house with my tin of whitewash, and I just whitewashed one of the towers, I reckon I'd, uh, I reckon treason laws would be dusted off. But the in the Middle Ages, it would not be unusual to have a sort of a brightly coloured castle. But we just think... So I mean, if you saw it on film, you'd say, well, that's absolute nonsense. Well, these people don't know anything about the Middle Ages. So you're right. This is a version of the Tiffany problem. I call it the whitewashing Windsor Castle. Whitewashing Windsor Castle problem. A copyright Dan Jones. Another thing, I I also think, I mean, I, I loved Essex Dogs. I lo- like I thought it was just, I felt like I was learning. I, this was a period of history I, I didn't know much about. And it made ba- a battle feel so immediate and personal when I tend to be so bored by military history. It was so brilliantly done. Your characters are so well sketched. And I think that your use of violence and gore is so well placed. You don't use it gratuitously, but you convey how brutal these battles were. Well, thank you. And there's, I don't read a lot of military fiction and I don't write. A, I mean, I sort of, it, it, some of my books, you know, books like The Crusade, you can't get away from it, but they're, they're political as well as military. And it's not, you know, I'm not a battle nerd, really, but I am a kind of people nerd. And if one of the techniques that I tried, or the main technique I tried to use in Essex Dogs in order not to have very sort of, either cliche or just like gratuitously unpleasant battle scenes was just a lock focus super super tight with one character mm-hmm. and you follow mainly two characters you follow the group of characters but you're locked with a couple of viewpoints Loveday and Romford through most of Essex Dogs and not as much as you but I have worked in TV as well as in writing and one of the directors I worked with on a show a few years ago 
gave me a very good piece of advice, which was if you're having trouble writing your way through a scene, just lock that camera on one person's shoulder. Mm. And I found that the more I did that in Essex Dogs, the more the battles sort of gained verisimilitude. And there's one, which is the, well, I suppose it's, it is a, a Cressy, where for part of it we're with Romford and he's just on the floor. Yeah. She's on the floor and all you can see is feet and people kicking him. <laughs> and it's really yeah, it's annoying. Terrible. But it and makes he can't it seem so real. Yeah. Can't get up. And you don't see anything else. Like in flashes, you see other stuff. That also I found like, firstly, it freed me from having to write endless, endlessly long, boring battle scenes. So you just got this like confused, chaotic vision through one person's eyes. But I found it also enabled me to make jokes because anyone who knows or is invested in the history of the Cressy campaign, will come to Essex Dogs and will be able to see where there are, there's little Easter eggs for the, the homeboys, right? Like, if you know that the Black Prince, if you if you heard about the Black Prince, go, well, it wasn't actually true that the Black Prince wore black armor, that's a Victorian myth, right? That's okay, that's true, that's true. Uh, then there's a, there's a joke for you about why, well, how he gets that name and the way he acts when someone offers to give him some black armor is like, it's, but if you don't know, it doesn't matter. It, it stays in character, but but picking viewpoints that are attached closely to one character in a, usually in a lonely part of the of the social uh, hierarchy, you can, I just found I had much better ways of of having jokes and and subverting history and messing around with it and and I enjoyed myself doing that a great deal. But then look, I this I'd never written a novel before; it was all new to me. And now you're doing another. There's a sequel coming out. I, I believe it's part of a trilogy. It's. Number two of a trilogy, yeah, and uh, I gotta, I gotta really finish writing that thing. Yeah, get on it so that I can have you back on and we can talk about it again. <laughs> yeah, Siegecraft's different. Siegecraft is very different. Very different narrative challenge. I'm finding it writing a, the story of a siege to the story of a campaign. A military I campaign is, is pretty easy. Like, it, it, oh, it, of course, yeah, famously easy. All of us are thinking that. But what you what you have built into it is narrative imperative. It goes forward because the army's moving and all you've got to, well, not all you've got to do, but the, the thing you've got to, actually, the thing you've got to do with a, a battle campaign that's difficult is not make it inevitable where they're going. And you've got to throw red herring after red herring in and give them different diversions so that it's not just, oh, well, they're on a train and the train's going to the station. We stop them here, yeah. The difference with the siege is... Man, this train isn't going anywhere. <laughs> this train's just at the station. It's going to be at the station <laughs> until everyone gets off. So it's very, very rich in in textural opportunity. Uh, unless very, it's a very... teenage girl on a horse who thinks she talks to God, it shows up. That's good for your siege. You know, you, you sit about the trouble with with Calais. The trouble with Calais. The trouble with Calais is it's Cal not Orlane. No, true. What you do have, just in the same way that at, at Olio, you've got um, Joan of Arc and the White Horse, and every, you know instantly when you say that, everyone knows what you're thinking if they listen to this podcast anyway. Yep. It's Joan I haven't done a Joan of Arc episode, yet, but I will. Well, you've got to get Helen Castor to come and do it. She is brilliant, yeah. Helen, she's, she's, she's the best. Put that aside, Calais, you have a very, 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 very famous end to the siege. So if you've been to Calais, there's a Rodin sculpture in Calais of the six burghers of Calais, and they're coming out with the nooses around their necks to offer their lives to Edward to buy the freedom of everyone who's left in the city, who's survived by eating rats and horse leather and whatever, whatever, whatever. And it's a really famous, really famous scene. And then you have, of course, Edward says, no, I'm going to hang you all. And his wife, Philippa, oh, please don't do that. Oh, okay, then I won't. It's a bit more dramatic than that. 
more pathos in it than that impression suggested. But there are things in Calais to write towards that are there from the history. And so I've, that's helpful. I love this. I don't know anything about this. There's so much history, Dan. That's the lesson of history, isn't it? There's, yeah. there's tons of it. Every time you think I, you've, you've got a handle on it, there's some more comes along. I've been reading nonstop history for a few years doing this podcast constantly, and I've never heard about these burgers coming out with nooses around their necks. Oh, the bags of the, the, the Rodan. Just go and Google the Rodan sculpture because the Rodan sculpture, there's two of them. There's another one, I think, in London. Maybe some, not London, maybe somewhere else. I made a couple of films, the, like the real history of Essex dogs. I made them in the summer last year. And we went to Calais and I stood and looked at that Rodan sculpture. And it's just, I mean, obviously it's, it's um, not 14th century. It's Rodan. It's modern. But it's a sensational piece of sculpture, which each of these six burgers has a different form of grief conveyed by their mannerisms and their face. And they are, mm. what, what's amazing about it is he has given them individual character. And when we think about so many of these set pieces from medieval history, if it's not the king or someone like near the level of the king or Joan of Arc or whatever, they're just sort of generic noble or generic knight or generic peasant or generic archer or whatever. And what Rodin does so brilliantly in that sculpture is say these were real people, mm. each one individual and each with a different reaction to this, what we now see as a sort of a fixed historical tableau. And Rodin is an immeasurably greater artist than I will ever be, obviously. But the... I don't know. He never um, wrote Essex Dogs. Well, the, but the aim in, in writing Essex is, is to capture some of that, is to say like, that an army of 15,000 is 15,000 individuals and each one of them with their own take on the thing that they're experiencing. And when we think of medieval archer, yeah, okay, that's like, that's a type, that's somebody who shoots a pretty similar bow with a similar arrow out of a similar bow in a similar place. But each one of those people was an individual and, and in the realm of fiction, at least, that gives you such rich opportunity to, to do things with the past that nonfiction doesn't always allow you to do. And so that's, um, for me, why I've enjoyed my little uh, gap year in fiction. Brilliantly said. Essex Dogs comes out in America February 14th, I believe. Makes a great Valentine's Day gift. Immortality. The week we before, yeah. It, it's, yeah. It's a pregame to immortality. Are you 21st? I'm, I'm 28th, two weeks before. 20th. It's a little... Okay, but... Plenty of time to read it and get ready for immortality. Your February could be sensationally good fiction-wise, couldn't it? Right. Get a good Valentine's Day gift for the medieval history lover in your life. Yeah. And then Did... get a uh, get Dana's book after that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, clearly, when you're ready to go to bed... This is what I planned. I'm, a fireside chat. Roll, roll from here straight into my slumber. And Next time I'm in London, will you take me on another tour? Can we go do something? Yeah, what do you want to see? I'm coming uh, this summer. Are you? Yeah, I'm leading well, we a, to... a tour to Cornwall, but I'm going to be in London for a bit. Okay, so we went to Westminster Abbey last time, didn't we? Yeah, I got a personal tour from Dan Jones in Westminster Abbey. Just not to brag, but it was it was wonderful. We had to queue up. I'd never done that before. It was. I know. He was like, he's like, you're on TV. You don't have to wait in line. Well, why don't we go to the Tower of London? Done. I'm there. Let's do it. Tower of London's good. Yeah, we'll do that. Great. I'll okay. see you this summer. And I'll see you even sooner because we're talking about your book again for your launch. 
Oh, and then I'm coming to LA in April. I'm coming to see Iggy Pop. You're going to get so tired of this. I see you so much. This is good. I know. This is fantastic. Great. Order Dan's book. Dan, I'll see you so soon. I can't wait. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.